0: I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and that to chapter 5. We'll actually begin reading the verse right prior to chapter 5, so chapter 4, verse 19. And I'll read through verse 7 of chapter 5. Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Well, the book of First Peter is a book that is uh, highly concentrated on the topic of suffering. And that because Peter was writing directly two suffering Christian believers residing in the area of Asia Minor, now present-day Turkey. And these were Christian believers in the midst of all kinds of suffering, but largely around their conversion. They, they were being persecuted by those who opposed their conversion they were abandoned by family and friends. They were subject to mistreatment from the civil authorities, from even their employers. But these were Christian believers living in perilous times and circumstances. And Peter's writing here to them because this was actually just a foretaste of what was to come. Because these very same Believers would soon experience really the severest persecution the church has ever experienced. Severe brutality and the mass killing of Christians at the hands of an inhumane emperor by the name of Nero. And so Peter, in in special timing, he, he teaches them about persecution here. Throughout the entire book, actually. And he does so in a way that Would cause these Christians to anticipate the greater persecution that was to come. And so Peter writes to these faithful, to these faithful band of believers, the very purpose, which was that they would stand firm. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I have written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And he says, Stand firm in it. You see, that's Peter's purpose. His purpose is so that these believers would stand firm and remain steadfast in the gospel of the grace of God. That they would unshakably stand firm in it. He was writing to build them up and to encourage them. These hard-pressed saints that in and through the suffering that they would stand firm. Now I think God's word to us this evening is this. That we would do just that. That we would be faithful in our suffering. That we would stand firm in our suffering. You know as Peter comes and you'll notice here in 1 Peter in chapter or at the end of chapter 4 and here in chapter 5 as he comes to the near close of his letter it's really his desire to leave leave this lasting impression upon the believers here. He wants to provide for them something that they will hold on to and something that they will never forget. Critical words that will help them to remain faithful despite the pressing and the trying conditions that they found themselves in. And so he tells them, and we begin here in chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, he says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. He says to them, this is how you will weather the storm. This is how you will withstand these fiery trials. You ought to entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. That you ought to give your life over to God who is faithful. That if you want to survive through these perilous times, then the only way that you'll carry through, the only way that you'll be able to see it through is by entrusting your soul to him who is faithful. And beloved, that that ought to be, this ought to be the reminder to each and every one of us in our own trials. That in our own trials, that our endurance and our Perseverance would be marked by our trusting and our trusting in him. Notice verse 19 says here, entrusting while doing good. That he wants us that while we're suffering, he wants us to be entrusting of him while doing good. Well, what does that mean? It's an it's a trusting obedience to a God who is faithful. And so we can ask, what does God require of me? What does God require of you when life as you know it becomes at times unbearable? What does God want from me? And the answer is that we would trust Him. That we would depend on Him. We often sing that when darkness veils His lovely face, That we would rest on His unchanging grace. That in every high and stormy gale, our anchor would hold within the veil. In other words, this trust, this trust in the midst of suffering is a trust that continues to worship God. And it's a trusting notice in chapter 5, verse 7. As... Casting all your anxieties upon him. This is is what it means to trust God in the midst of suffering, is to cast all your anxieties upon him. Remember, he's speaking to Christians who are under extreme, immense pressure. And to some degree, we know what it's like to be under pressure from, from our own tribes. And what think about it what so what so often happens in times of pressure in our own trials? anxieties grow, anxieties grow, and our 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 anxieties seem to grow bigger and bigger to the point that they obscure our vision, and we begin to see everything in light of our trials, don't we? I mean, when you go through suffering, when you go through trials and hardships, how many of us how many of us do that? I do that. The reason why I can speak like this is because this is what happens to me. This is how I naturally respond to the hardships that come in my life. I naturally tend to look at the trial. And we become crippled by our anxieties. And Peter says here, Christian, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And one of the ways you do that is by casting your anxieties upon him. Now we can ask, why, why, why should we cast all our anxieties upon him? And look back at verse 7 of chapter 5. It says, because he cares for you. Why, why should I cast my anxieties upon him? Because, because God cares for me. Christian. Did you know that? You see, when everything is going well, it's the tendency of our hearts not to even think of the question. But when things change, when circumstances in our lives darken, we forget, don't we? We often lose sight of, and I sent this in my member's email, I think it was beginning this week, William Cooper, William Cooper, he he writes a hymn and it sings, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And Christian, we can cast all our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. You know, there's a story in the Gospel of Mark that after a busy day of ministry, Jesus and his disciples, they got into the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And while they were on the water, a great windstorm arose and the boat was being tossed amidst these massive waves and water began to fill the boat. And the disciples, you probably remember this story, they started to panic. And they were thinking that they were going to drown and die. And all of this was happening while Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And remember what Peter and his disciples said? They woke Jesus up and they cried out to Jesus. They said, Don't you care? That's what they said to Jesus. Don't you care? Jesus, we're we're perishing. Don't you care? And I feel like we at one time or another that we've asked this very thing to Jesus ourselves. God, don't you care about what's happening right now in my life? It's the instinct of our human hearts in times of difficulty. Don't you care? But, beloved, we're assured right here in His Word that He does care and that He cares for you. Jesus responded to His disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? You see, the very asking of the question by Peter and the disciples revealed just how little they actually trusted in him. And Jesus asked, why are you so afraid? And you see, this is what these disciples forgot. They forgot that the Lord of the universe was right there in the boat next to them. And they forgot. And they lost their vision of Christ by again focusing their eyes upon the storm. And Jesus was saying to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm right here with you. We just read it in Psalm 23. Remember David's words? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. Well, why will he not be afraid? He says it's because you are with me. And so Christian, we can never forget we can never forget that He cares. Now stay with me here until the end of this sermon will, and we'll have the proof that He does care for us. Now notice what follows in chapter 4, verse 19. It's this passage on elders and He says in five one, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. And so Peter he speaks to these suffering Christian believers, and he tells them of the necessity of entrusting their souls to God. And upon the heels of chapter four, verse nineteen, he transitions to chapter five, verse one, and he looks to the elders of the church, and he now commands the elders of the church to care for and to shepherd the people of God. In other words, he says to the believers, entrust yourselves. To a faithful creator. And then he says, elders, as my under shepherds, faithfully pastor and care for these very believers. You see the relationship there? One of the practical means by which these believers will endure through these challenging trials is by, is through the faithful shepherding of the elders. That's what he's trying to say here. And notice how these elders are to pastor the people of God. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but he says, but being examples to the flock. And Peter, he, he goes on Speaking to these elders on why why they ought to pastor in this way, he says, verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's because one day elders and pastors will have to stand before the senior pastor of the church, the chief shepherd of the church, to give an account. Now this pat or this sermon is not necessarily on elders but you see the relationship here and notice it it doesn't end there just as elders are to be faithful in shepherding the flock of god notice peter in turn calls the church to be faithful in subjecting themselves to the elders in other words peter says this just as it is important for elders to tenderly to tenderly care for the people of god It's just as imperative that the people of God subject themselves to the elders. Peter is telling us that this is by divine design. That this is how the people of God, that this is how the church will endure and steadfastly brave through trials. It's going to be through the faithful shepherding of elders and the loving submission of His people. Now watch what Peter then says. And here's what I want to devote our time to. And this is where the incarnation comes in. After addressing both the elders of the church and the people of God in the church, Peter brings his instructions to a climax, to its highest point. And he says, by he says, by looking at every person in the church, look at verse 5. Likewise, likewise, he says, all of you, all of you, what is indispensable in your survival survival as a church, what is critical for your endurance as a people of God, he says, is that every one of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is what Peter is calling every church member to. Humility is what is necessary in the life of the church in every person in the church. Humility. This is central to both elders as they shepherd the people of God and to the people of God as they subject themselves to the elders. This is important in every single relationship within the body of Christ that each and every one of us put on the garments of humility. More literally, the verb there, clothe, clothe, you see it there? It's actually a specific verb. And it's a verb that refers to a servant who tied an apron around their waist prior to serving. So he just doesn't say put on any normal clothes. Clothe yourselves in the attire of a servant, of a slave. Put on the the proper garments of a slave to serve. That's how you clothe yourself in humility. And it's no accident that Peter uses these choice words here. As he vividly recalls one particular servant who had tied the apron Of humility around his waist to serve. Why does Peter use this verb? Because he remembered Christ. He remembered Christ in the upper room. Who in humility served his disciples. It was in the upper room. Moments before the cross. That Jesus tied an apron around his waist. As he girded a towel. In such fashion to wash the feet of his disciples to strip down to but a loincloth, to wrap that towel around your waist, to dry off their feet. Beloved, it was the lowliest possible task. Not even fit for the lowest of the Jews, but really only fit for only Gentile slaves. And for those disciples who were notorious for having arguments as to who was the greatest among them, not one of them was willing to tie that apron around their waist to do so would have been humiliating. It would have been shameful. it would have been degrading but Jesus remember he he tied that apron around his waist. but you see it wasn't the apron that was tied around his waist that most defined his humility it wasn't the putting on of a of a slave or a servant's clothes but rather it was the putting on of our humanity the greatest expression of humility was that jesus christ clothed himself in our humanity the puritan thomas watson he writes that christ should clothe Himself with our flesh, a piece of earth which we tread upon. Oh, infinite humility! Christ taking our flesh was one of the lowest steps of His humiliation. For God to become man was the wonder of humility. And so for us, we can't get so enamored by Jesus' humility in wrapping a towel around His waist, but rather, the greater act of humility in wrapping Himself in our humanity. That He would clothe Himself in humble flesh is the greatest expression of humility. And again, we I spoke on this last Thursday, but it's not so much that the Son of God was born in a run-down manger laid in a wooden trough to feed animals. Attended to by the lowly shepherds. But that the Son of God came identifying himself as a human person like you and I. That's what it was. There is no more descriptive passage of Jesus' humility than Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2 is a very special and unique passage in regards to Jesus' birth. Because when we think of Christmas passages, passages pertaining to Jesus' birth, you see, some are prophecies, right? Such as Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall shall call his name Emmanuel. Some passages in the Bible are prophecies descriptive of the event of Jesus' birth like the gospel accounts in Matthew or like we went over last Thursday in Luke's gospel. These accounts describe uh, the events which took place surrounding the coming and the birth of Jesus. Well, some passages are theological in that they explain to us the significance of the coming of Jesus, the theological implications of his birth. But I want you to notice that with Philippians chapter 2 it's unique because it's the one place in the whole of the Bible where the perspective is not of the wise men or the shepherds or Mary or Joseph or the prophets or even the apostles themselves but the point of view is of Jesus himself. Philippians chapter 2 opens the door into the mindset of the Son of God regarding the birth of the Son of God. And that's what makes it so interesting. Look with me beginning in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count, and this is from his perspective, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, verses 6 through 8 and up to 11 are thought to have been some form of an early Christian hymn, some people might say. And so if you have your Bibles, some of your English translations will bring that part out in sort of sort of a poetic structure. My ESV does not do that. Well, some translations do that. And that's because I would say that there's something poetic here about these verses. Maybe it was an early Christian confession that Christian believers used to recite together, possibly in the same kind of way that we Sing our doxology together. But this confession, this expression, this passage, gives us again the perspective of Jesus. And I believe it gets to the heart of what the incarnation was actually about. Notice the beginning of verse 6 here. It says, who though he was in the form of God. That is to say that Jesus was God. In that all the attributes of God were the attributes of Jesus. His omniscience, His omnipotence, His immutability, His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness, His love, His sovereignty, His power, were the characteristics of the Son of God. And as the very Son of God, He was God and shared the nature of God. Now Paul says a few things here in Philippians 2, about the mindset of Jesus. Notice that what Paul says here is the viewpoint of the Son of God. First, that though he was in the form of God, verse 6, he did not in his view count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was God by nature. Jesus was God by right. He had every entitlement as God. And Paul is telling us that Jesus, though he was in every aspect God, he did not fully exercise that right. He did not hold on to his God not given rights, but his God possessing rights. There's a difference. He didn't take advantage of his divine privileges. The Son of God, dwelling in the glory of His Father's presence, dwelling in the center of heaven's adoration, chose to resign and lay aside those very divine freedoms and privileges. And Paul says, instead of grasping that, instead of holding on to that, He came into this world clothed in humanity. Secondly, verse 7, It says, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. For the Son of God to come in human form, it says, he came as nothing. He did not grasp equality with God and say to himself, I'll I'll never allow myself to experience anything except that which is appropriate to me. As the very Son of God. He never said that. He didn't hold on to all of His divine rights that He rightfully possessed. But He came into this world, what Paul is saying here, not with hands clinging to His divine rights, but He came empty-handed, is what he's trying to say. Emptying, as it were, all those expressions of His deity that were His by nature and by right. He came to us in the likeness of men. He came to us as a human baby. The Son of God came in tiny embryonic form in that fetal position in the darkness of His mother's womb. And like Timothy says, This is the mystery of godliness. That him who came from the burning light of glory would come into the darkness of the womb of a teenage virgin girl. Instead of holding on to the accolades of heaven and heaven's glory, he came in utter weakness. He came in frailty. He came... In smallness, in total dependence, He came in humanity. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 that He who was rich, rich beyond all splendor, became poor for us. That He came in the poverty of human flesh. This is is the wonder and the mystery of the Incarnation. Notice he says, verse 8, thirdly, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was in Jesus' mind as he went through his life knowing he was going to the cross? It was full obedience to his Father's desire. And not only to become obedient to death, but to a particular kind of death, Paul says. He says, even death on a cross. Now notice, why does Paul even say it like this? Why couldn't he have just said, and he became obedient to death? But he says, even death on a cross. Well, why does he say it like that? It's because if you were a Roman citizen, you would have felt the shock of this statement because the word cross And its family of words like crucify and crucifixion, it it was all distasteful and it was offensive language. To to mention the cross in Roman society was offensive. It was an obscenity to talk about such a death. And Paul is saying, that's how far down the Son of God came. And usually when Paul speaks about the cross, he speaks about the cross in regards to our salvation, right? But here in Philippians chapter 2, he's focusing not so much of what the cross meant for us as Christians, but rather what the cross meant for Jesus. That he came from the highest of heaven's glory to the most offensive of obscenities. And there you have the greatest expression and example of humility. And what's amazing is that the mindset of Jesus in his humility here in Philippians chapter 2 is set in a context to change the mindset of the Christian believer. It's as if Paul is saying, I want to show you the transformation that this Christmas message produces. It produces humility in the Christian believer. Look at chapter 2, Philippians here, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the mindset of Jesus is transferred into the mindset of the believer. The mindset of the Christian believer flows from the mindset of the Savior. And it's that of humility. It's one of humility. As I count others more important than myself. He could have grasped equality with God and said, Father, I'm much more important than they are. But rather he said, I'm willing to take on flesh to die for their sins, to count them more important than myself. I will do this. I will clothe myself and I will wrap myself in the garbs of humanity that they might be brought into fellowship with us so that they might too start thinking of others as more important than themselves and this is what jesus produces and that the mind of christ is reproduced in the minds of believers and so we verse 3 in humility count others more significant than ourselves and we look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others because we Have the mind of Christ. See it there? The reformed theologian John Stott, he said, that the secret of Christian unity is humility. And here's the thing. By nature, we don't have this mind. We don't. But only in Christ Jesus is this mind yours. And you begin to get this mindset when you begin to understand that Christ came from the highest of heavens to the darkest and the deepest of obscenities and that for your salvation. That's when you begin to get this mindset. How do I know that God cares for me? It's because He came to save me. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature this is what this is what Andrew Murray said that Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature the eternal love humbling itself clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness for the very purpose to win us and to serve us and to save us And as you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, as he has offered salvation to you, you begin to experience what the heavenly father's highest desire is for you. That he should begin to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So that in turn, you would count others more significant than yourself. Now I want you to watch how the father responds to his son's humility. Notice the mindset of the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father responds to Jesus' humility by exalting Him. In Christian, just as the Father so desires to exalt Jesus in His humility, so too does He desire to exalt you. How do I know this? Turn back to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. And look what Peter says here, first Peter chapter five, verse six. He said, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see what he's doing that what he did for his son He's wanting to do in you. You see, we understand in the Christian life that the way up is the way down. That's how we understand it. To humble ourselves. Not so much because His mighty hand seeks to destroy us, but because His mighty hand is a gracious hand that seeks to save us when we think about the incarnation the message the message of the incarnation is a message of humility but a message of humility to achieve a purpose and that is to save sinners And in saving sinners, making us humble as he was humble. Let me close uh, with these words. The wonder of wonders, oh, how could it be that God became flesh and was given for me? The Almighty came down and walked among men. The wonder of wonders, he died for my sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can again come before your word. That it would be open to us. It would be open to us and it would come and teach us the message of your son. Coming down in our frail humanity, that he who was rich became poor, clothing himself in the poverty of our humanity, and ultimately to save us. We thank you and we pray that as we, as we celebrate this season, I pray that Lord, what would be on our hearts first and foremost would be Christ. And that even in our suffering, even in our trials, that we would know that you are with us. That you're drawing close to us and ministering unto our hearts. That you humbled yourself to come to care for us. And so Lord, I pray that you would encourage us I pray that in our own trials, we would look to Christ and that we wouldn't be obscured in our vision of the things that are before us. But Lord, we would continue to seek to be faithful. That we would continue to entrust ourselves to a faithful, to a faithful creator in God. We thank you. Bless us as we sing. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.